So we pick up this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a passage, verses 8 through 17. Read along with me there. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, most of that is not new to us, is it? Much of that is the same things that we have covered in recent weeks leading up to today. And so it is that Peter, in the first part of verse 8 there, says, Finally, because he is, in effect, wrapping things up. He's ending this section of teaching that actually began uh, pretty much back in chapter 2, Verse 12, where he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Remember us going over that? And so he was saying in that verse that you need to make sure you're conscious about how you're living your life. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a follower of Christ, then there needs to be a difference in your life. There needs to be something different about the way you live your life. And then he goes into the whole thing about being subject to authorities, being subject to your employers. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so now he comes to this point, he says essentially, finally, now wrapping things up, recapping, summarizing, The New American Standard Bible translates that word to sum up. And so many of these things that he is covering in this passage are things that he has touched on. He's reiterating them in some fashion to kind of remind us that just to kind of sum things up, let me just recap here and touch on some of these key points. Finally, you know, oftentimes... In messages, you'll find that there's quite a few other scriptures throughout the message on a Sunday morning, because in developing a good sermon, 
We should always use God's Word to prove or substantiate God's Word. And so if there is a particular topic or principle, then we should go and find that same topic, that same principle in God's Word in other places to make sure that what we are saying or what we understand about a particular passage is reinforced by other places within God's Word. Because when people don't do that, when they look into God's Word and they, they pick a word or a phrase or a, a verse or a passage and they say, oh, here's what it means, here's what God is saying, far too often that can lead to false doctrine and heresies because they're not looking at the full counsel of God's Word. They're looking at one thing in one place and sometimes our sinful nature gets involved and we see it the way we want to see it, we hear it the way we want to hear it, we want it to be to our advantage, we want it to be the way we want it to be. But if you look at that same principle in other places in God's Word, sometimes you'll find that maybe you're wrong. And in order to really understand a passage, you have to look at other, other verses. I share all of that because it made me think about, like when, sometimes when I'm working in my yard, I will plan a project day, you know, and I'll get out there to work in the yard. And I'll cut the grass, and I'll rake the leaves, and I'll plant some flowers, and I'll use the blower. And, you know, it's just an all-out. I'm all over the yard doing all kinds of things. It's somewhat encompassing. But then sometimes I'll set aside a day, and I'll say, you know what? I'm going to do just this one thing. I'm going to focus on this one thing. I'm not going to do a whole lot of other stuff. That other stuff will have to wait. And so today's message, you will find that I'm not giving you a whole lot of other scriptures because I want us to park right here in this place like that project. I want us to focus our attention right here and not be off in other places because we've really covered this ground before. And you can go back and you listen to the sermons in previous weeks leading up to this and get all the extra supporting, uh, message, uh, supporting verses and stuff. But today I want us to focus our attention right here in this one place. So this passage between verses 8 and 17 is kind of split in half. Verses 8 through 12, Peter there addresses how Christians are to relate to one another within the body of Christ, within the church. How are we to relate to one another? And then the second half of this passage, verses 13 through 17, Peter addresses how Christians are to relate to those outside the church. So let me bring your attention back then to our text here. Verse 8, he says, finally, wrapping up, recapping here, he goes on, as I've told you many times before, he is addressing this letter, of course, to believers, those within the church. And so he says here, all of you, all of you, now, perhaps in the preceding verses, he had talked to uh, how we relate to civil authorities. And so he's talking to civil authorities. He's talking to husbands. He's talking to wives. He's talking to employees and employers. And maybe somewhere in some of that, you might have said, well, that's not me. You know, I, I'm not that. I'm not a husband. I'm not a wife or whatever. But he's saying here, just to be clear, that you may, some of that stuff may not apply to you, but for all of you. All of you, these following things apply. 
Here's how you are to relate to other believers, those within the body of Christ. The first thing he says there is have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. This is incredibly important. Because particularly now, perhaps more so than ever, you know, I've mentioned in the past that I think there was perhaps decades ago where there was maybe at least some common mores and, and values within our society, within our culture, where, you know, there was at least people kind of honored and, and, and respected the Bible. People honored and, and, and respected authority. They honored and respected those who were in ministry. But we seem to have lost some of that, that common mindset. And sometimes that even infiltrates the church. And so this is one of the first places where we can be distinct. We can be different and should be different. Because the world is living in relativism, they want everything to be for them. What's best for them? So, I want things to be the way I want them to be, and there's what's right for me, and there's what's right for you. But within the church, we should know that there is simply right and wrong, and what is right is God's Word, and what is wrong is anything other than God's Word. We should be unified on those things. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to see eye to eye. It doesn't mean that we're always going to agree on everything. Goodness knows, I know that that's not true. So many churches I have heard of over the years that have split over things like pew color, carpet color, paint colors, song choices, order of service. I mean, you name it, petty, petty stuff. And churches have dissolved and split over things like that. And so we must have unity. There is so much disunity in our world today that we really don't have to do a whole lot in that area to be different. But we must be unified. Others who look at the church must see unity. And there must be unity in the important things like doctrine. We may disagree on colors orders of service and songs, but we must be unified on the important things like doctrine. We must be unified on things like our objectives, that we are called to share the gospel, to be a light in a dark world. Those things are what are important. We must be unified on our doctrine and our objectives. The Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. If you're familiar with that passage, you may recall that he goes on thereafter and talks about quarreling, that he's heard about quarreling going on within the church. And so he's kind of giving them a, a bit of a caution, a reprimand, and saying, 
that there should be no divisions among you, that you should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Within the church, there should not be division. There should not be quarreling. And so in Peter's passage today, he gives us these instructions about how we should live our lives within the church as we relate to those other believers who are in our church. He says that we should have unity of mind, that we should have and demonstrate sympathy for one another. We should have and demonstrate brotherly love for one another. We should have and demonstrate a tender heart toward one another. We should have a humble mind. We should demonstrate humility that instead of arguing over what's what I want, we should put the needs and the interests of others ahead of ourselves. We should be humble, looking out for the interests of others, caring for others. This is radical. This is radical. It shouldn't be so, but it is. In our society, in our culture, in our world today, this is radical. That You mean that I should be humble instead of being out there touting my own successes and telling the world about how great I am? You mean I should put others ahead of myself instead of fighting and clawing and making my way as I step on other people to get to the top? It's radical. It's different from the world. It's countercultural. And that's what God has called us to be. He's called us to be different. We should be different. We are believers in Christ. We are followers of Christ. We purport to obey and follow His Word. And since His Word is not reflected in our culture and in our society, then surely if we are going to follow His Word, there must be something different in our life. We would be different from the rest of the world because the rest of the world is not following God's Word. And if we do, then surely there must be a difference evident in our own life. John writes in his Gospel, the words of Jesus. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If you have love for one another, people will look at your life and they will see that you are my disciples. Now from that we could deduce, we could extrapolate the opposite, right? That if people look into our lives and they look into our church and they don't see love for one another, then they're not going to know that we are His disciples. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church is not a social club. Now that may be revelational to some of you. The church is not a social club. There are plenty of clubs out there if you want to just go socialize and you want to make friends and you want to go somewhere where you have things in common. Goodness, there's all kinds of things. You know, if you're into uh, remote control airplanes, there's a club out there for that. If you're into playing chess, 
there's a club out there for that. If you're into running or walking or exercising or painting or photography, there are clubs for all kinds of things. If you're just looking for a place to go and socialize where you have something in common with other people, then there are clubs for that. But church is not a social club. There's far more to it than that. You see, to be a member of a church, to be a part of the body of Christ involves commitment and investing in one another. I know that word commitment sometimes can be a hard pill to swallow because in our world today, people don't want to commit. They don't want to commit to anything. Some people don't even want to commit to marriage. They don't want to be committed. They don't want to be tied down. They don't want to be held to accountability. So they just want to wander around. So going to church for some today is just that same way. I'll go here a little while. I'll go there a little while. I may even go to two or three at one time. I'll go to this one this Sunday and another one that Sunday. And I just I don't want to commit. I don't want to invest. I don't want to, you know, sign up for anything. I don't want to work in the church. I don't want to do anything because then I'll be accountable. And what if I decide that I don't want to go to that particular church this week? Maybe I want to go somewhere else. You see, there's no commitment. Church is much more than just a social outlet. It's much more than a social club. To be a member, to truly be a member, to be a part of the body of Christ involves commitment and investing in one another for our good, for the good of one another, for the good of the body. There are a few things that irk me more as a pastor than to encounter somebody that I haven't seen in years. And they come up and say, hey, pastor, it's good to see you. You know, I'm still a, I'm still a member over at Westside. I'm like, for real? You could have fooled me. Because I ain't seen you in years. Now, how are you a member of a church that you don't attend? Well, you're, you're a member on paper, maybe. I, I mean, what is a member? I mean, if you're a member of a baseball team, aren't you expected to show up? You're supposed to be there for practice. You're supposed to be there for the games. You're supposed to be there for the meetings. If you're a member of a baseball team, you know, you don't just say you're a member of a baseball team and never show up. But people will tell me, people will tell you possibly. You see them out and about and they say, yeah, you know, I'm still a member of Westside. Well, no, you're not. No, you're not. A member of the body of Christ is committed and invested in that body to see it grow, to see it prosper, to see it fulfill the mission that God has called this church to, that we are to be a light in darkness, that we are to make a difference in this community, that we are to share the gospel, that we are to be unified as a body, unified in doctrine, unified in mission, being a part of the body of Christ. It's a high demand. There are expectations. There are accountabilities. It's not somewhere that you just wander into and wander out. We need people 
that are truly members, not just a name on a piece of paper from 10 years ago, but somebody that is here every Sunday that is committed, that is volunteering, that is helping to achieve the goals, the mission of our church. Again, we're not always going to agree about everything, just like a family. (laughs) You all have family members, do you always get along? No, don't lie. You know you don't. But you love each other. And you don't just say, well, you know, I don't agree with my brother, so I'm just going to, he ain't part of my family no more. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Just because you disagree on something? No, of course not. So even within the church as a family, we're going to disagree from time to time. But despite the occasional difference of opinion, I didn't say differences of doctrine, I didn't say differences about our mission or our goals or our objectives, but if we have occasional differences of opinion, then we must maintain our unity and our love for one another. It's what Peter says that we are called to. You're always going to have times when you disagree with someone in the church. Or someone may offend you, or you may get your feelings hurt. But that doesn't mean you just run away. And it certainly doesn't mean that you fight back. And so we see in our passage today, as Peter addresses this issue and reminding us about how we, as believers and followers of Christ, how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ, within the church. Verse 9 He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now note the context here. You see, he is not so blind and so ignorant that he would suggest or believe that even within the church that this sort of thing is not going to happen. And so even within the church, he says, do not repay evil for evil, because evil is going to happen. People are going to do wrong things. People are going to say wrong things. And you're going to have differences of opinion. You're going to have disagreements. You're going to get your feelings hurt. You're going to be offended. Those things are going to happen, even within the church, because the church is made up of people. And people, by nature, are sinful. People make mistakes. And so he says that when it happens, when you experience evil or reviling, when people are offensive to you, do not return in like manner. Don't be evil to them because they were evil to you. Don't be harsh with them because they were harsh with you. Don't seek to get back at them or repay them. But on the contrary, Bless. Bless them. And so how do, we, how do we do that? Well, he answers that question even in the context of this passage. On the contrary, we are to bless. We are to have sympathy. We are to demonstrate brotherly love. We are to exhibit a tender heart. And we are to be humble. And put the needs and interests of others ahead of ourselves. We within the church are to truly 
love one another. That means we must be different than the world. And we must be willing to change. I've used the word sanctification before, and I think I've explained that. But salvation occurs in a moment, but sanctification occurs over a lifetime. And so it is that change that takes place in us from the time that we are saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. God and the Holy Spirit are working in and through us and changing us. Well, if we are resistant to that change, then we are resistant to the hand of God. He is calling us to a life of change that we should be conformed, transformed into the image of Christ. And when He returns, the Word tells us that in the twinkling of an eye that we will be changed and we will be like Him. But as long as we are here on this earth, it is a process of sanctification. We are being changed over time. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. And we play a part in that because we can either fight against that or we can embrace it. And we can say, God, I need you to change me. I'm willing to change. I want to be different than I was before I was saved. I want my life to be different. I want others to see a difference in my life. We must be different, and we must be willing to change. As I was uh, going over this passage in preparation for this week, and reading God's Word and meditating on what Peter was saying here, not just the words, but the, the general, the gist of it. What is this message to us? In effect, it is, as I said, it is a countercultural primer. He's telling us that our lives should be different than the world. And it made me think of this somewhat old song now, I guess. It's a song that had not been out long when I first became a Christian. And I remember it well because as a new believer, I was just a sponge. I was just soaking up everything. And I remember this song and I want to share with you the lyrics here. It's a song entitled, I Have Decided. And it came at such an appropriate time as a new Christian that I would hear this song and, and sing along with it. And you know how songs kind of get in your head and they just go over and over. And, and so I remember it well. But the lyrics go like this. I have decided I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back. On the deceiver, I'm going to live what I believe. That's countercultural, isn't it? I have decided being good is just a fable. I just can't because I'm not able. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. There's a wealth of things that I profess and said that I believed, but deep inside, I never changed. I guess I'd been deceived. Because a voice inside kept telling me that I'd change by and by. But the Spirit made it clear to me that that kind of life is a lie. So forget the game of being good in your self-righteous pain. Because the only good inside your heart is the good that Jesus brings. When the world begins to see you change. Don't expect them to applaud. 
Just keep your eyes on Him and tell yourself, I've become the work of God. We should change. We should be in the process of changing because we should be different from the world. You know, I think it would probably be fair to say that we all want a good life, right? Anybody here just want a bad life? Nobody? Nobody? I just want my life to just really be terrible. And I want to be able to look back on it and say, that ah, was just horrible. No, we all want a good life, obviously. And how we define that may be uh, different from some. But we would probably all agree that I want a, a good life. I want it to be pleasant. I want it to be rewarding. I want it to seem valuable and meaningful. Peter, in this passage, quotes from Psalm 34. Beginning in verse 10, he says there, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. That would be us, wouldn't it? I think we've all agreed that that would be me. I want to love life, and I want to see good days. That's me. And so he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So do you want to have a good life? Do you want to enjoy good days? Well, he gives you something of a prescription here. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If you want to have a good life, do those things. He says, for God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. But his face is turned against those who do evil. So Peter says... Finally, in summary, as a recap, here's how you should treat other believers within the church. When those outside the church look at the church, when those outside the church look at this church, here's what they should see. They should see unity of minds. They should see that we have sympathy for one another. They should see that we have brotherly love for one another. They should see that we have a tender heart toward one another. They should see humility. Putting others before ourselves. They should see that we are keeping our tongue from evil. They should see that we are keeping our lips from speaking deceit. They should see that we are turning away from evil and doing good. They should see that we are seeking peace and pursuing it. And so we see in verses 8 through 12 that Peter 
makes it clear on how we are to treat one another within the body of Christ, within the church. And it is so important that we understand this. Most of the message today is on those first few verses because I'm convinced that it starts here. It starts within the church. You see, because if we can't love one another, if we can't get along with one another, if we can't forgive one another within the church, then tell me, how are we going to go out into the world and show them love? How are we going to go out into the world and demonstrate forgiveness if we can't do it first within the church? We can't love those unbelievers if we can't love believers. It must start in the church. So verses 8 through 12 make it clear as to how we are to treat one another within the body of Christ. Verses 13 through 17 reminds us of how we are to respond to those outside the church. And I'll be brief here. I just want to run over this so that you are reminded, as Peter said, let me just kind of recap here. He says, beginning in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I want to point out one quick thing there, the word if. If is a two-letter word, but in this context, it's a big, big word. Now, who is there to harm you? We would embrace that, right? I want to feel like that I am uh, um, safe and strong and protected, right? Now, who is there to harm you? But notice the next word, if. If you are zealous for what is good. See, sometimes we forget the second half of verses. You know the verse that says, all things work together for good? How often do you hear it quoted like that? Well, you know, all things work together for good. And they stop. Because the rest of the verse says, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Those who love God, all things work together for good. But see, there's a condition there, right? Yeah, all things are going to work together for good. For those who love God, well, if you don't love God, there's no assurance that things are going to work out good. And so, he says here, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But any, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those outside the church, those who will seek to offend you, to destroy you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now I will make one more point here from that passage. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And here's the key part. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now let me ask you a question. If there is no demonstration of hope in your life, if there's nothing different about your life than their life, if there's no difference in your life than the everybody else's life, if there is no evidence of hope, there's no evidence of something different about your life, who's going to ask you? Nobody. They have no reason to ask about the hope that is within you if there is no evidence of difference. If there is no evidence of hope in your life, then they have no reason to ask for the reason of the hope that is within you. And so he says, be prepared to make a defense, to give a reason, to give an exclamation, to give a testimony for the hope that is within you. When people see that hope and they see that difference in your life, they're going to be compelled to ask the question, tell me, what is it that is different about your life? There's a difference. I see a difference in your life. They have no reason to ask if they don't see anything different. As I said, Matthew was kind enough to share his testimony with us on Friday night. And I recall one of the things that he mentioned was that there was a young lady that he encountered who had cancer, I believe it was. And she was uh, got diagnosed with cancer. And many of us probably, you know, we would, would struggle with that news. But this young lady... She said, God's got this. That was her response. God's got this. And it made an impression on Matthew. Because he said that in that moment, he realized that I know God, I know about God, but I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have the kind of faith that could face cancer and say, God has got this. You see, but the testimony of her life, the difference that was in her life, there was evidence of hope in her life, and it was the evidence of that hope in her life that caused Matthew to ask for the reason for the hope that was in her life, because there was a difference. We are called to live a countercultural life, that if we're just going to be like the rest of the world, if we're just going to be like everybody else, then we might as well take church off the name of this building and just be a social club. We must be different. We are called to be different. If you're living a counterculture life, others will see it and they will wonder at the difference. So as Peter has, so do I this morning, I ask you. I plead with you. To decide to follow Jesus. Decide to live like a believer. 
decide to live a counterculture life that is not like the world. Decide to obey God's word and follow his plan. Let's pray. Father, I know that we desperately need you. And I feel it all the more now, Father, than ever. It seems like in so many ways that our world is growing further and further away from you and from your word, from what's important to you. Father, it can be difficult for us as a church to pull back on those reins and to to fight against that. Father, I pray that you give us strength, that you give us courage to be different in this world. To be an example not for example's sake and, and not an example as pride, Father, but as your word says that we may be different, we may be that example so that we may share the reason for the hope that is within us and that others may see a difference in us so that they may glorify God. Father, help us to do that. Give us the strength and the courage. These things I lift up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.